This information is subject to a disclaimer at the end of this podcast. Please ensure that you listen to the disclaimer and go to www.ubs.com for further information about UBS. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning into the UBS Global Research Pod Hub, a channel that shares insights from economists, strategists, and equity analysts on the pivotal questions and events shaping today's markets. John, thanks very much for making the time. Thanks for having me, Bonner. Right. So recent data has been quite strong, John, and has really challenged our call on recession. How do you feel about the recession call here? Um, what have we learned today that we didn't know about six months back? And how, what does that tell us about the timing or the intensity of a potential recession? I will admit, you know, compared to what we laid out last November, you know, the timing has not unfolded as we expected. And in fact, we have we've learned a lot about various components of the economy as we've rolled through the last year. We've seen you know, a little more resilience in you know, single family construction has come up. Um, you know, we've certainly seen some of the fiscal impulse flow through a little bit more catch up in the labor market than we would have thought. But when I look at the you know, sort of the big components of the economy and the big things that have not unfolded as we've expected, um, it's really, I think, squarely on the resilience of consumer spending. Uh, is really the primary reason that we haven't seen more material economic weakness to date. And we continue to expect that we will see more material consumer uh, weakness uh, ahead. Now, you know, when we look at the consumer, um, we can say some of this has been a more resilient labor market. But, you know, the labor market has not generated um, actually the labor income gains that the headlines would suggest. We've seen this in downward revisions to wage and salary income. We also know that private hours worked in, in the, I mean, aggregate hours worked in the private sector have been roughly flat since January. So this really has shown how reliant the level of consumer spending has been on wealth uh, savings uh, and credit. So we have seen a much more resilient consumer than we expected and a much greater willingness and ability to draw down to save uh, rely on rebu rebuilding credit card balances uh, and, uh, and other access. To but looking ahead, we still have the recession in the baseline because we are seeing credit standards tightening, um, that use and expanse of, of credit to consumers slow. And we do think that the excess savings is running down and that that will force more households to live within their budget constraints in the coming quarters. Let me just press you a little bit on, on this question of, of the timing of the recession. Then you think this happens beginning Q4 or do you think this happens beginning Q1 if it were to happen? Because when you look at the math of real PC spending relative to real disposable incomes, you're absolutely right. One is scratching one's head how long this can continue. So, so your point about the source of this being wealth and savings and credit card, well, savings are not really picking up in such a big way. So, so it's wealth where, you know, house prices being firm must be one of those positives, the stock market being firm must be one of those positives. So, so the question is, how long can real PCE spend remain this strong, even when real disposable income isn't rising at such a fast pace? And if there is to be a catch down, therefore, in consumption and a catch up, therefore, in savings, what is the timing of that, John? We've kept the Q4 timing for starting to see a real retrenchment in consumer spending is in part because of a few material headwinds that arise at that time, in particular, the resumption of the student loan repayments. And when we think about a number of the different, um, you know, sort of fiscal impulses that have prompted um, and spurred some activity this year, 
you know, the, the resumption of the student loan payments, we estimate to be about, you know, $9 billion a month. So it's about $100 billion annualized. Um, that's a pretty meaningful uh, share of, of real disposable income, right? So we're really talking, you know, over half a percent, you know, four times that one annualized. And we also expect that many of these households are high marginal propensity to consume households. And that if you had abundant savings, you, you probably wouldn't still have uh, an outstanding student loan. And that these are households that will face a choice between repayment and having to curtail some other kind of consumption. There are also some other benefits um, expiring this fall. Medicaid rolls are being trimmed by the states. Um, Childcare subsidies end. There's also a, a, a um, uh, there's also a boost to uh, health insurance payments that's also going away. That are those are relatively minor, but this is a drag that is in place and a timing and, and sort of point of catalyst that that we've we've left this in the projection. But I will say, you know, getting the timing of this right was always going to be a challenge. I think you know, bigger picture, stepping back, and you sort of mentioned sort of the real improvement. Um, when we look at the gap between where the level of spending sits and where the level of income sits, and that includes interest income and all of the, the, the positives that you might get in a rising rate cycle, the gap is still very large. I mean, you mentioned the saving rate, you know, it's down near 4%. The last time it was this low was during the credit bubble of the 2000s, and that proved unsustainable. Um, you know, the wealth can carry some households for a bit here. Um, we certainly have seen cash out refinancings, you know, you know, fall substantially with the rise in mortgage rates. And we really are seeing the excess savings dwindle. But the credit card and rebalancings, as much as the levels are not particularly worrisome, that's been a pretty big and important way in which households absorb the, the, um, the inflation shock and their ability to continue to tap leverage in order to sustain spending growth you know, we think is going to be somewhat curtailed as lending standards tighten in the coming quarters. So we still do have a recession in our baseline. We still think it is relatively imminent, um, in part because of the timing of the student loan repayments and some other catalysts. But we, I fully acknowledge that, you know, getting the timing of this right uh, is difficult. But the initial conditions to us still point to a meaningful weakening. Uh, let's talk about inflation. So. Um you and your team have made the point that inflation has probably already landed, right? So we've had a soft landing on inflation. We're expecting roughly 20 basis points per month on core inflation between now and pretty much the next 12 months. So that's a pretty elegant landing point. Now, what I wanted to ask you was what are the key assumptions you're making behind that call? What, what is the assumption you're making on OER? What is the assumption you're making on, on recession? And what would make you change your mind? Right. So, you know, we've sort of talked about this earlier and, and the word conviction came up. And, and the one thing I would say is that, you know, we see the risks. You know, this is not, um, you, know, you know, we have a very ambitious baseline for the fall and in inflation in the coming, you know, three, four, 24 months. Um, but we are wary of some of the recent improvement uh, looks to us as, at least in part, a little bit due to uh, faulty seasonal adjustment. Um, and we also do see some risk that we do see some reacceleration in inflation uh, in the coming quarters as that unwinds. And we're not quite out of the woods on, on some of these components. But broader contour, you know, we do expect pretty meaningful disinflation. You know, we're tracking 3.3% for Q4 over Q4 
core PCE inflation uh, this year. That's six-tenths below the FOMC's June projections. And the data we got this morning on core PCE inflation is in line with that tracking. So we continue to see inflation falling. Rents are playing a big part of that. You know, we are getting incoming data from rents for newly signed leases that points to a material slowing to come in the way the CPI and PCE measure rents. We do see ongoing goods disinflation. I mean, we've seen the interest rate increases push used car loans up substantially. That does seem to be negatively affecting new car loans. And our forecast for softening final demand growth should also continue to curtail um, the goods, uh, goods inflation and, and continue to prompt that to disinflate as well. And we feel reasonably convicted about th those two components. I think the, 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 the big place we continue to see risk is in the other services. Chair Powell has highlighted the section of core PCE inflation, uh, ex-housing rents um, as being a, a, a primary source of concern for him. You know, that inflation hasn't really gotten away from us, but it still does remain elevated. And we have nominal wage inflation running four and a quarter to four and a half percent across most measures. That's a pace of nominal wage inflation that really is at odds with the Fed returning core PCE inflation to two and a half to two percent. So in our projection, though, we do have slackening in the labor market uh, that removes some of that impetus of nominal wage inflation and helps cool those other services prices. So. When we look out over sort of this year, you know, I mean, a lot of what we have in the forecast this year is already in train. Um, it's not that reliant on our expectations for material labor market weakness. But beyond the end of this year, our inflation forecast is very dependent upon our expectations for more weakness and slowing and final demand. And in particular, the labor market starting to slacken enough that it then becomes a disinflationary force uh, two. Okay, so, so the biggest uncertainty in your mind is the labor market wages, four and a half is not consistent with 2% uh, headline inflation and, and core PC as well. What about housing though? Because house prices have begun to move higher as well. Now for the next six months, maybe a little bit longer than that actually, you can see OER be a disinflationary influence on the overall number. But if house prices are going up, isn't that going to with compromise affordability and lead people into rentals? And couldn't OER at T plus six or T plus 12 be a, once again, uh, a positive contribution for, uh, for uh, an acceleration in inflation from here? It could be. I, I think the risks are a little more, a little more two-sided than that. I mean, we, we can go back, and there's actually been work out of the Fed system, including the San Francisco Fed, that's pointed to what they're seeing in rents for new leases as pointing to OER inflation potentially turning negative at some point um, in the coming year or two. Now, we in our projection basically just have it going back to roughly a pre-COVID case of gains, which would be consistent with you know, generally rising house price appreciation. I think there's an incredible degree of uncertainty, though, about how the HPA in the existing home sales market, though, would feed into um, rental inflation due to the affordability concerns. Very good. Let's talk about policy, John. And it seems that the terming out of debt because of several years, perhaps more than a decade of low rates and quantitative easing, both the consumer and the producer have termed out their debt. And as a result of that, the impact of monetary policy is perhaps not 
what models suggest, or perhaps not as quick as models suggest it perhaps should have been. Given that, what is your outlook for Fed policy from here, uh, and what are the risks to it? So going back to the, you know, the interest rate sensitivity of the economy, it's true there's been a lot of terming out in debt, and certainly in the U.S., the prevailing mortgage is vastly fixed rate. We knew that coming into this year, right? So that that, that is a um, a known known um, how that would unfold. There are segments of the economy though that are still facing this adjustment that are much more interest rate sensitive. You know, Sean Simons and his team had done some nice work on looking at the mid caps where, you know, the Russell 2000 X financials, about half their debt outstandings floating rate, you know, looking ahead also, it, it, it's still early. You know, we're still seeing the follow through in lending standards tightening. You know, that still has more to go to see the pullback in lending in the banking system. Um, you know, if you if you plot, say, the senior loan officer opinion survey from the Fed against certain type of bank loans, it does look like there's more weakening to come uh, in the coming quarters. So we're not out of the woods yet. Um, it is still a little early and we are starting to see the impact of higher rates um, slowing final demand in a number of sectors. Now, for our outlook, you know, we, we see the risks. The Fed right now looks to be in sort of this calibration stage where they're trying to set the real funds rate at a level that's sufficiently restrictive to, you know, return the economy to price stability. You know, right now the debate is whether or not do they need another rate hike to do that. You know, in our economic projections with our inflation and labor market outlook, they probably don't. Um, but we'll see if the economy and the resilience uh, improves. Chair Powell was quite clear at Jackson Hole that, you know, if the, if, if the growth that they've seen year to date continues, they likely will have more work to do. Um, or if the labor market displays any sort of intensification of uh, inflationary pressures, they would likely have more work to do um, as well. Now, beyond that, we think as they head into December, with our forecast that inflation falls faster and much faster than the FOMC expects, that this real rate calibration becomes more of a two-way conversation for the nominal funds rate. Uh, you know, in the summary of economic projections, uh, the Fed is setting the nominal funds rate you know, within two percentage points of core PCE inflation. So as that spread widens in reality, they're going to have to start to have a conversation, or at least maybe not have to, they seem likely in our view to have a conversation about uh, at what point is policy becoming too restrictive. And at that point, as they manage this spread, you know, we think that the conversations become a little more up and down for the nominal funds rate and that that conversation could happen as soon as the December meeting uh, if inflation falls fast enough. Beyond that, our rate outlook is highly dependent upon our recession call. Um, Based on our analysis, if there is a contraction, even a mild one in the labor market, that it would prove meaningfully disinflationary. That if you took the wind out of the wage bargaining power to the extent that a rising unemployment rate would, that we would see a pretty rapid disinflation, both pricing power coming out of goods as well as out of, out of the services sectors, that would, you know, we think pretty quickly pull core PCE inflation below 2%. In an environment where inflation is below 2%, which we think is our base, which is our base case for next year, 
and you've got a rising unemployment rate that moves above the Nehru and is still rising. I mean, that's an environment where, at least in theory, a central, central bank should be far enough below nominal neutral as to be engineering some sort of economic recovery or at least putting a floor under, under the economic contraction. So, you know, our forecast is for the Fed next year to cut rates pretty meaningfully and get back below a 2% nominal funds rate and potentially as close to one in our baseline scenario. But that's fully dependent upon the disinflation that we get created in our recession outlook. In fact, I think the outlook is pretty binary in some ways, because if we don't get the weakening we expect in the labor market, we think there would be substantially more inflation in the economy for next year. And in fact, enough that the Fed's lack of progress would probably push them to further nominal increases in the funds rate because they would need to, ta to target a much higher uh, real funds rate in order to engineer um, enough weakening to get the disinflation to bring inflation back to 2%. Okay, so in the base case scenario, uh, you see the Fed cutting much more than what's priced into the forwards. In the scenario that our base case is incorrect and we don't get a recession, how restrictive do you think policy needs to get? Well, in that case, you're gonna, they're gonna need to target Right now, we think they're essentially targeting a real funds rate of around two percentage points. And just you know, extrapolating that math, I mean, if inflation's gonna get stuck at you know, three and a half percent, and say the Fed needs to target a two and a half or three and a half percent real rate, I mean, you're very quickly doing math that takes the nominal funds rate to over 6%. So the market disagrees with our call on recession. Right. So not only that, I think the market's pricing in soft landing plus in that if you look uh, since May, late May, early June, you've actually seen cyclicals outperform defensives considerably. Not all cyclicals, but certainly industrials, materials, large parts of the consumer are doing quite well relative to the defensives, healthcare, utilities, consumer staples and so on. So the market's al almost trading as though this is the beginning of a new cycle. Right. I want to go back to a point you made earlier where you're saying the initial conditions in the U.S. economy are not such that lead to significantly higher growth. So could I just press you on that? Do you think we could at this level of real rate, which is close to 2%, at this level of the unemployment rate, which is close to 3.5%, could we see the birth of a new cycle, which is what the market seems to be saying, without going through a recession? Is that possible? Is, that, is there precedent for that? There is some precedent for these sort of, you know, mid-cycle slowdowns and reaccelerations. But I think what is fundamentally different now than what we saw in, say, I mean, we can look back in sort of 2015, 2016, you know, and we can talk about the ups and downs of the last expansion. But right now, the initial conditions for that, I think, are quite poor. Um, nominal wage inflation running four and a quarter to four and a half percent. I mean, that is inconsistent with getting core PCE inflation even to run sustainably at two and a half percent, let alone let alone two. And we've we've got the unemployment rate already down to three and a half percent. We've also exhausted um, a lot of the labor supply gains um, that come from a rising labor force participation rate. So the labor force participation rate has leveled off and demographically adjusted it is sort of above the demographic trend of where it was in 2019. So you've already, you've already exhausted a lot of your gains in labor supply at this point. 
if we really are seeing a reacceleration here and the economy is going to run as fast as it did year to date and the labor market is going to sustain the strength of this ex labor market expansion, that's an environment where labor market tightness is going to incrementally tighten further, pretty likely, um, and probably not see moderating nominal wage growth, but potentially reaccelerating nominal wage growth. So, you know, when we look at that sort of set of parameters of where the labor market sits and how tight it is now, it just seems very difficult to me to think you're going to have a reacceleration of the cycle, that momentum improve, and that not prove inconsistent with the FOMC's goals. You know, in our base case, we see meaningful disinflation and a Fed that accomplishes its goals. But it accomplishes those goals in part because it does have an economic correction, not particularly huge, but large enough to engineer a slackening of the labor market that helps the labor market start to work with the FOMC's goals as opposed to against it. Okay, that's that's very clear. What about capex cycles? Because when you look at industrials and you know Caterpillar and Honeywell and industrials like that trading close to all-time highs, clearly they are looking for a strong capex cycle globally, but particularly in the United States. Uh, there has been strength in non-residential construction. The housing market is also quite strong, at least in terms of prices and low inventory. So there's, you could debate at least this idea that you'd need strong construction as well. So is it possible that we see a new CAPEX cycle coming through? Well, incoming data that we're getting wouldn't really point to a real new CAPEX cycle, but I will say that the levels are substantially higher than they were. Um, you know, you know, pre-COVID, when we look at the magnitude of what we've seen in, say, manufacturing plant construction, I mean, that's a sector that was contributing, you know, 55 or so billion dollars annualized of investment. And we've seen a, a, a pretty nice shift up to sort of, you know, low 80s, uh, 80 billion annualized. So, I mean, that's been a big boost in terms of the, you know, percent gain in that sector. But relative to the size of the macro economy, I mean, 30 billion um, or 25 to 30 billion annualized on a, you know, 25 trillion real economy is is not. It it's it's great, um, but that's not you know the difference maker if the 14 trillion dollars of real consumer spending um, um, is weakening. Uh, in addition, in the nominal construction put in place data coming in, that is largely leveled off as well in the last few months. That could be revised. I mean, in our forecast, we do see um, some additional gains in non-residential construction. But when we look at the orders and shipments data, that does not look particularly strong. Um, orders have caught up to shipments, which is generally does not bode well for growth going forward. And business fixed investment is tracking you know, relatively flat thus far this quarter. Okay. Um, I want to present to you lastly, John, um, the pushback that we got get from many clients when we, when we speak to them about the U.S. recession call. And the pushback usually is you don't typically get a U.S. recession when you have A, real incomes increasing, and B, when you have the kind of fiscal support that you do in the U.S. economy. How would you respond to that? Well, I mean, we've certainly seen um, some improvement in the reels, um, but I, I would argue that there's a significant amount of that that's already behind us. Um, when we think about what's happened with headline inflation having fallen quite rapidly, you know, we're two thirds from the peak, 
A significant amount of that energy price decline basically took place by November of last year. So a lot of that in terms of a cash flow effect to households is, um, is behind us. Another thing I would note is that you know, a meaningful share of the disinflation going forward for us as well is in um, owner's equivalent rent and rent of primary residence. Now, the way those are measured in the inflation data, that will be a mechanical boost because it is going to be falling inflation. But that's not really a household cash flow improvement for anyone with a, a fixed rate mortgage, for example. When we look at the gap between the level of income and the level of spending that income should imply, it's several percentage points of GDP. Um, it's more than the remaining improvement in inflation is going to be able to make up. Um, I mean, just mathematically, that chasm is quite wide. And when we think about you know, realigning fundamentals in this economy in a world sort of post-COVID support, um, you know, the, the improvement in real income from the fall of inflation alone is simply, in our view, just not enough to square that circle. The fiscal support also certainly has been meaningful and has shown up in the data in the first half, but we would also sort of make a similar point there where, you know, when we look at the magnitudes, you know, we struggle with um, trying to see just how it overcomes or how the positives, I guess, is a better way to put it. Over Recent debt ceiling agreement removed nearly $250 billion out of baseline federal spending over the next two fiscal years. The student loan repayments are gonna be 100 billion annualized, and much as that's nominal, that's still gonna be 60, 70 in 2012-based reals. So we, there are a number of things in the mix for fiscal policy, and you know, when we think about it, you know, I think those magnitudes are important. And even when we talk about the deficit widening, you know, when we deconstructed you know, why the 2023 um, deficit widening relative to 2022 was unfolding, a significant amount of that widening, you wouldn't really call fiscal stimulus. I mean, $80 billion was the lack of a spectral auction. That's not that stimulative. Um, so there's a lot going on in the fiscal space. Um, but when we look at the ups and downs, the reason we think the fiscal impulse is positive still is really a result of the excess savings. You know, households you know, saved a substantial amount of the multi-trillion dollar transfers to households during the COVID benefit packages. And that's one of the things that allowed consumer spending to stay so resilient. I think the CHIPS Act and IRA, certainly a nice plus. I think the headwinds of the student loan repayments are gonna be pretty material. And I think in the end, the latter is probably gonna outweigh the former and how the contour of next year unfolds. So here's what John and I discussed. We first discussed the conviction on the recession call, and clearly we have learned a lot over the last six months, particularly the strength of consumer spending. Uh, data released recently also suggested that through Q3, real consumer spending, particularly in goods, which was surprising, remains extremely resilient, including in areas which are quite discretionary in terms of the consumer spend. So that really does affect the math, at least in terms of our Q3 GDP outlook, but potentially also our full year GDP outlook. Now, we still believe in a recession, and the reason we still believe in a recession is because the math of where real PCE spending 
sits relative to real disposable spending doesn't make sense in terms of whether or not it can sustain over the medium term. The consumer does need to increase his or her savings. The savings rate does need to go up from four and that will mean weaker consumer spending in Q4. We still think there's a recession coming in Q4. The timing of that could be pushed out a little bit, but we still think there is a recession coming. We completely concede that that call has not worked out so far. In terms of inflation, there have been several factors that have led inflation lower, primarily OER and also uh, used car prices. And that should mean that core inflation averages about 20 basis points through the course of the next 6 to 12 to 18 months. But John did say that we are considering whether or not we need to revise that at a later point if our recession call is wrong. So if our recession call is wrong and the labor market continues to be stronger than expected, then other services, which is one part of inflation that uh, Chair Powell has been watching very, very carefully, will probably be stronger than uh, what we have got in our models because we have wage growth moderating and the unemployment rate rising. If that were not to happen, then there is upside risk to inflation. I pressed John on the OER question. Could a strong housing market lead to a reacceleration in OER? And John's not worried about that in a big way, at least over the next. Now, what does all of this mean, thirdly, in terms of policy? If our view on inflation and growth is correct, then by December, the Fed is looking at real rates which are much higher than what they would like. The Fed would like at this minute to keep real rates around 2%, but if our view on inflation is correct, then the Fed's view on inflation is wrong. They have inflation much higher in their forecasts than we do in ours, and that then the conversation on bringing real rates a little bit lower becomes alive. The nominal rate needs to come lower because inflation has already come off. The next thing we spoke about, John and I, was about the possibility of a reacceleration in the US economy, uh, given that's what the market seems to be suggesting in cyclicals outperforming defensives in a very big way. And John doesn't buy it, right? So he's saying the starting points, the initial points of the US economy in terms of where real yields are, in terms of where the unemployment rate is, in terms of where how much labor has already been absorbed, are just not conducive to get a meaningful acceleration in growth from here. It is unlikely that we are at a juncture of a, a mid-cycle inflection higher and, and the US economy can completely avoid a recession and begin to accelerate from here. So John disagrees with that. And lastly, I presented to John the two big pushbacks to our recession call. Number one, you never get a recession when real income growth is positive. This is from clients. You never get a recession when real income growth is positive. Number two, the fiscal stimulus is so strong that you're not going to get the US economy in recession. John concedes that there's some validity to both points, but number one, on real income growth, we have already seen the best. Uh, the, from a cash flow perspective, remember the consumer doesn't sit and calculate year-over-year year inflation. From a cash flow perspective, the best decline in inflation which came through lower energy costs already happened in November last year and since then we have seen moderately lower uh, nominal wages. So from we've seen the best in terms of real income growth improve. The fiscal again, um, it is important and may be important for the long haul in the US economy, but just in terms of the numbers, it doesn't add up to be a very large contribution to the overall economy. And again, there are some factors that are pushing in the opposite direction in terms of uh, student loans and also in terms of the decline in spending because of the debt ceiling negotiator of this year. So John, hopefully that's a reasonable summary of your views. Uh, thank you very much for your time. I know I took a lot of it, but this was a really important, really useful and really fun conversation. Thank you so much.
This content has been prepared by UBSAG, its subsidiaries, and or affiliates, and is purely informational in nature. It is not investment research and does not contain an investment recommendation, nor investment or professional advice. It is not an offer or solicitation to engage in any investment activity, and you should seek your own financial, tax, and legal advice before engaging in any such activity. UBS has no responsibility to you in relation to this content and has no regard to your personal circumstances or investment objectives, and receiving it does not imply any form of client relationship with UBS for any legal, regular or tax purpose. This content is not intended for distribution into any jurisdiction where to do so would be contrary to law or regulation. UBS does not accept any liability over the content of such material or reliance upon any information contained herein. The views and opinions expressed by any guest speaker or third party are not those of UBS. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over any such views and opinions expressed by such persons. This content is the valuable intellectual property of UBS, and UBS specifically prohibits the redistribution of it in whole or in part without its prior written permission. Copyright UBS 2023. The key symbol and UBS are among the registered and unregistered trademarks of UBS. All rights reserved.